Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Yeah, so I'm going to be reading Nehemiah 4, 6, 6, 15, 16, 7, 4 to 6, A, and then 8, 1 to 4, 5 to 6, 9 to 12, and then 12, 27 to 28. Um, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. So the wall was complete on the 25th of Elul, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, All the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record for those who had been the first to return. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others he could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. As he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived, and they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem. And I'll just pray for Steve before he starts. Lord, I thank you for today, and I thank you for bringing us all together in church so we can just worship you and bring, be closer to you. I pray for Steve and as he does renew for the first time today, um, and that we'll all just be able to hear what he has to say and forget about everything else that's going on and just be present with you. Amen. Amen. Well done, Rebecca, and thank you. It's great, <clears throat> it's great to be speaking today on a holy people. 
So over the last few weeks, if you've been with us, we've been looking at this remarkable story of how God in the fifth century used a man called Nehemiah to bring the people, uh, well, the people are already back from exile, but to help them rebuild the city walls uh, against all kinds of opposition, we looked at that last week, and against all kinds of obstacles, and remarkably, as we just read, they completed the rebuilding of the city walls in 52 days. But rebuild is only the first part of our preaching series. The book of Nehemiah, uh, they, they rebuilt it. We learn about that in chapter 615, 52 days. But there's still six and a half more chapters of the book to go. Like, what else is the book of Nehemiah all about? The walls have been rebuilt, hallelujah. Ah, a much bigger issue, renewing the people's hearts. Chapter 615 was only halfway there. The city walls have been rebuilt, but the people's hearts need renewing. What happens next in the book of Nehemiah, a quick overview of the book, after they've rebuilt the wall against all that opposition in chapters 7, 10, 11, and 12, they repopulate Jerusalem with Jewish people. They say, you've got to come back and live now within the city because they're all scattered still. And so literally we have that list of these people moved in and these people moved in. And you've read those lists and you've glazed over them. It's significant because they're getting the people back together to be God's people. But in chapters 8 and 9, which was most of the reading was chapter 8 and chapter 13, they're not just bringing the people back to the city physically, they're bringing people back to God spiritually. So what we're going to see is that despite being back in the city, despite the city walls being rebuilt, the people's hearts were still not fully aligned to God. There was compromise and impurity within God's people. In other words, the bigger issue was not the disrepair of the city walls, but the disrepair of the people's hearts. One commentator puts it like this, the wall is regarded as no more than an institutional framework. That ca- what counts are the attitudes and activities of the people who live behind it. However important good structures and routines may be, nothing can substitute for the renewal of the natural perverse inclination of the human heart. Let me put it like this. They knew where they were back in the city, but they weren't sure who they were. What kind of people were they going to be? Or maybe put it like this. They were externally impressive. They had a fortress again, the city walls, they were safe. But maybe they were internally compromised. Their hearts were still attached to a number of idols that they discovered outside the city walls that they brought in and got lodged in the heart. They couldn't just remove them quickly. If we didn't have the second half of the book of Nehemiah, the people of God in the fifth century would have had city walls, but they would not have been a holy people, different from the nations around us. They wouldn't have been an alternative community on earth to represent God to the nations around. In other words, it would have been easy for the people to be busy behind the city walls, but not godly behind the city walls. Isn't that a temptation for all of us in church? Brothers and sisters, it is. We get busy. We know our roles. We know how to just get on with it. And that's got a point, but that's just structures. What matters is are we godly in all of life, outside of everything that happens on a Sunday? It's easy to be busy as a Christian. God is far more interested in you in being godly, giving over every aspect of your life to the Lord to be used for his service, set apart by his word. The scriptures continually tell us that the tendency of humanity is to focus on external appearance 
but the priority of God is to focus on internal transformation. So God wants to focus on making us the right kind of people. Now, I've said a few times in this preaching series, this lovely verse, this very famous verse from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Just as Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, an alternative nation on earth, representing Christ, uh, God, Yahweh, to all the nations on earth, an alternative people. So Jesus says to his disciples, and as you now are the city of God, you're this alternative community on earth. You, by living under Jesus as king, show everyone else around who doesn't know Jesus as king what it's like to be free, as we've been singing, under the rule of Christ. And we get to invite others in to the eternal city of joy. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Light dispels the darkness of unbelief and the darkness of sin as people encounter the gospel of Christ. So Christ City Church, our vision is to be a city within a city. God's city within the city of Dublin for the good of the gospel and the well-being of the people. So Jesus says, so let your light shine. But what comes before the light of the world speech from Jesus? You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. We're not only the light of the world, we're not only a city on a hill, we are the salt of the earth. Salt prevents decay and enhances flavor. So God wants us to salt Dublin with his presence to prevent the decay of evil in our city and to preserve and enhance the beauty of God's image that is in this city through the people. But salt is no good if it loses its saltiness. And once it's lost its saltiness, it cannot be made salty again. You might as well throw it out. The second half of the book of Nehemiah is saying, God wants a salty people, different, distinct. Their hearts are fully aligned with God's heart in the way they worship, in the way they live their lives. So what sort of people should we be behind the city walls or in the church? The second half of Nehemiah says, a holy people, because we know God's word. A committed people, because we know God's story. And a joyful people, because we know God's grace. That's how we're salt and light. So let's look at those three. A holy people, because we know God's word. As was just read in in Nehemiah chapter 8, a fellow reformer turns up, Ezra. He was a contemporary of Nehemiah. And he reads the law of Moses for hours and hours and hours. If you think these sermons are long, they were four or five hours, right? Nehemiah, uh, Ezra, uh, you're blessed to have me, believe it or not. (laughs) Uh, And he reads uh, the law of God and he explains it and interprets it and the people are willing to listen and and they at one point, you know, respond our men and our men and lift their their hands in worship. But as the law is read in chapter 8... What actually happens is they're convicted of sin. That there was, and there's five sins we read about. We don't have time, but if you read the second half of Nehemiah, you'll find the five sins are corruption in the priesthood, abuse of the disadvantaged, intermarrying with non-Jewish people, failure to pay the tithes to support the priests in the temple, and failure to observe the Sabbath. And as the people read God's law from the book of, that Moses wrote, they realize they're really far from God's standards. And that's always the first sign that God is at work renewing his people. Deep repentance and conviction of sin. Admitting and mourning our sin, realizing that our hearts are far from God, stopping the pretense, admitting our failures, 
being real with ourselves, with others, and with God. How does that happen? God's word comes and acts like a mirror, holding up God's standard like Ezra did. And as you hear God's word and you read God's word in the Bible, you go, how far short have I fallen from living according to God's standards? It's easy to be busy in the church. God wants us to be godly in the church. So whenever corporate renewal comes, as God's word pierces our hearts, it exposes darkness, and it brings us to our knees in repentance. Now, if you think about the five things I said, if you summarize those sins, the sins of Nehemiah's day are the sins of our day. Typically, money, sex, and power. Money, they don't obey the Sabbath because they don't want to miss a trading opportunity with the other nations. They don't pay the tithe to the priest because they want to keep the 10% to themselves. So money has a hold on this people. Interesting, we looked at that last week. Sex, they're intermarrying with non-believers, non-Jewish nation, the non-Jewish nation, diluting and polluting God's holy race. They were not upholding God's standard for sex given in Genesis chapter 2, that the only context in God's purposes for sex is with one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. And all other sex is not uh, according to God's standards. They weren't doing that. Money, sex, power. They were abusing the poor. In chapter 7, in chapter 13, there's a man called Tobiah who's forcing different alliances and playing different games so he remains prosperous and powerful within the social elites. We cannot be the salt of the earth if we're not salty in the areas that everyone struggles with, money, sex, and power, that are common to every human heart, whether you're 250 years ago, 2,500 years ago in Nehemiah's day or in our day. We'll consider this a little bit more next week. But if anything I've just said by the Holy Spirit has stirred your heart, if the Holy Spirit is just putting his finger on something in your life that's not up to what God's standard is according to the scriptures, don't resist him. He means no harm. He wants to lead you to freedom and joy as you're obedient to Christ. As the song famously puts it, it's only in your will that I am free. He wants to lead you to freedom. That's his purpose. So what kind of people were they going to be behind the city walls? A holy people because they knew God's word. Secondly, a committed people, because they knew God's story. As chapter 8 unfolds, and as the people hear God's word read to them through Ezra, they suddenly realize, wait, what time of year is it? They're reading this, you know, the Old Testament law given by Moses, and they find themselves in a place where they go, well, Leviticus chapter 23 said at this time of year, we're supposed to be celebrating a festival called the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It was a seven-day festival that once the people of God had stopped wandering the 40 years in the desert and arrived in the promised land, God said every year, at this time of year, you have to relive the wilderness by living in bivouacs. I always thought it was the coolest Old Testament. You know, I was like, Mum and Dad, can we bring that one back? We all go and live in bivouacs, you know, in tents in the garden. In other words, remember what it was to be that vulnerable, wandering people that God sustained you in your hardship and brought you to this land of plenty. And they were like, as they heard Ezra read the law, they went, we're supposed to be doing this festival. We haven't done it for years. And the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, did two things. Firstly, it reminded them of God's goodness and faithfulness in their past to their ancestors. Why were they in the city of Jerusalem in the first place? 
because God had led them through the wandering wilderness for 40 years and brought them to the promised land. It reminded them of God's faithfulness in the past. Covenant renewal always remembers God's faithfulness in the past. And secondly, it reminded them of their identity. This scattered people brought back from exile, who were they? This is who they were. They had roots, roots that went deep into history. They were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation by the grace of God. The Feast of Booze reminded them that they were not a rootless people. They felt rootless, but they weren't a rootless people. They had a deep history, a wonderful story. God was telling a story of salvation in history, and they were a part of it. They felt small and fragile behind those city walls. But if truth be told, the true wall around them, what did the wilderness tell them? The one that was really protecting them was not in bricks and mortar, but was the living God with a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. He sustained them. Many years earlier, a man called Zechariah got given the most wonderful prophetic vision for God's people. It goes like this. Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself, God says, will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I'll be its glory within. Zechariah, speaking to the exiled people, said one day, Jerusalem is going to be too populous. There's going to be so many people and so many animals, you couldn't build city walls to contain this city. It's fulfilled in the spread of the gospel and the, ch- and the growth of the church through all nations that you couldn't put a city wall around. This is the city of God that is truly being built. And who is the wall around God's people? God himself. And what is the fire within that they had in the wilderness? It's God himself, the glory within. That's what the Feast of Booze told them. Their true fortress was not city walls, but God. They lived in makeshift bivouacs, tents, to remind them of their true identity and their true protection. And to say, this is our story, and we need to weave ourselves back into the story that God is telling of being his people. And so for us, Christ City Church, what's our story? We're not saved out of slavery to Egypt, to the promised land, but we just sang it. We're saved from slavery to sin and death through the blood of Christ and into eternal and fullness of life in Jesus. That's our story. We might feel small. We might feel fragile. We may be tempted to run to bricks and mortar, jobs, finances, status, career, to build a sense of protection around us. But our true identity and our most important protection is the great God himself. He says, I am your wall around, I'm your fortress, and I'm glory within. We're children of God through faith in Christ. John chapter 1, we're born again, born not of natural descent or a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You know, rootlessness... It's a very common problem, isn't it, in major cities like Dublin. The state of having no roots, no ties to a particular place or community. We don't feel like we have a true home. 
We look at other people and we say they have houses or family or social ties or career or money or opportunities or stability or long-term friends. And we go, I just feel so rootless in this, main, you know, this major city that I live in. I'm so fragile. Who am I? Do you know who you are? You're a child of God and your roots go back into eternity, the eternal God himself. You couldn't be more rooted. You could not be more rooted. And all those things, we look around and go, look how rooted they are. When you're a child of God, you're more rooted than anyone else. The great God chose you, loved you, enabled you to be born again by his spirit, adopted you into his family, is now a wall of fire around you, is your glory within you. You have roots into eternity. You have the protection of the Lord Almighty. You're part of a city that can't have walls because it's too big. God's eternal church. How do we remember that? I would like to still do the bivouac thing, but Jesus in his wisdom said, remember me through bread and wine. The bivouac, feast of booze, old covenant. New covenant, how do we remember who we are through grace? It says we take bread and wine. It's through Jesus we have roots in history, uh, beyond history into God. It's through the cross that we have a destiny that's secure and hopeful. It's through Jesus that we know God is our fortress. When we break bread and wine together, we remember his death, the gift of eternal life, and that each of us can become a brick in that eternal city that God is building that will never fade, never crumble, and will know eternal joy. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the precious stone. He's the stumbling stone. He's the stone the builders rejected so we can become living stones in the city of God, the eternal city of joy. Do you know who you are in Christ? Your core and most foundational identity, your great story. What's your, now this is my story, this is my testimony. Your story is great. It's greater than you can imagine. It goes back into the eternal God himself and the story of Abraham and Moses and all the way to Christ and now by the Spirit into our lives. When you know your story and your roots, you have strength to be salty when everyone around you is losing their saltiness. It'll give you that stability. And as you know who you are in Christ, you not only commit to him, you commit to being the city of God together. Weeping with those that weep, rejoicing with those that rejoice, one people, one body, one family. What kind of people were they going to be behind those city walls? They were going to be a holy people because they knew God's word, a committed people because they knew God's story, and finally a joyful people because they knew God's grace. I said that initially, didn't they, they responded with mourning and weeping because they were so convicted at the sin, their lives didn't match to what God had revealed in his word, and they realized they needed to repent and get right with God. Uh, but what did you, did you listen to carefully what Rebecca read out? Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, a verse we all love, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. In other words, godliness and gloominess are never friends. To be godly does not mean to be gloomy. In fact, the opposite of godliness would be to be gloomy, in my opinion. Godliness means joy. 
There's a false impression, isn't there? You know, those godly people are working so hard and are so gloomy and are constantly moaning about how bad the world is. And No, no, no. Nehemiah says, hey, let's have a feast. Let's celebrate. When you know God's grace and what it is to be brought into his purposes and aligned with his heart, and yes, there's got to be conviction of sin, but you end up rejoicing because your sin has been forgiven. Let the Holy Spirit bring that inner conviction. Yes, mourn over your sin, but true repentance leaves no regret and leads to salvation and joy. The Spirit convicts us, but he does not condemn us. In fact, the Spirit cannot condemn us because we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So conviction of sin should never lead to gloominess over our sin, but the joy of salvation we have in Christ. So we should be people that celebrate. Recently, I'm reading a book currently by a guy called Jack Miller, uh, who wrote a series of letters to missionaries in Ireland and Uganda. Uh, He set up a mission organization, which still goes to this day, and he was writing letters to those on the mission field. And he wrote a lot about repentance and joy. To one person, it's a brilliant book called The Heart of a Servant Leader. To one person, he wrote this. But once the Spirit shows me, this is Jack talking about himself, the self-centered, unbelieving core of my fears, then then help usually comes to me very quickly in the form of release. Essentially, I need to confess to God that I have deep-seated need to protect and control my life and ministry. Once I acknowledge that hard, painful fact to him, grace seems to stream into my life. The joy of repentance. Isn't that wonderful? That's painful. God's convicting me and I've got to get rid of why am I fearful? And he wrestles with it and allows God's spirit to bring the conviction. But when he finally submits and repents, he says, ah, release. Grace streams in. The joy of repentance. Later, he goes on to say, we rep- as we repent, we magnetize the world." with hope, love, and joy. When you repent, it means you're so full of hope, so full of joy, so full of love. Earlier, I spoke about money, sex, and power, and I'm sure God wants in every single one of us, I've been trying to reflect on my own life, where he wants to bring internal change to me. And he does want to bring change to all of us in those areas, or at least one of them. But he also wants to deeply reassure us of grace for our sin and the joy of forgiveness. So in another letter, I love the way Jack Miller puts it, he says, please don't be afraid of the working of God. Let Christ break down sloth, lusts, pride, coldness, prejudices, despair. He has a great deal of experience cleansing his temples, and you can trust him to overturn in order to fill you with songs of gladness. Let Christ do his cleansing work in us, his temple. Why? To fill us with songs of gladness. Don't despair. Allow him in. Gloominess and godliness are not friends. So what happens in Nehemiah 12? The people dedicate the wall, and it is some spectacle. Nehemiah forms two choirs and gets them to march around the city walls they spent 52 days rebuilding in the opposite direction and they sing heartily and they meet in the middle. It's a bit like the walls of Derry. Have any of you been to the city of Derry? It's, it's, it's close to Matthew's heart. And, uh, uh, you know, it's like there's a big mural of the Derry girls, you know. It's like the one choir jumping on by the Derry girls, you know. And then on the other choir coming on the other side and then walking around the city walls of Derry and meeting in the middle and then singing out to the city about the grace of God and dedicating themselves, not just the city walls, 
to God's purposes afresh. It's a joyful scene. I also think of it like All Island Final Day when they do that march around the city, uh, around the city, around the, around the stadium, and you know the two teams are against each other, like, you know, and it's like suddenly joy, and they, the two teams come around to the middle, meet, and then sing together in praise. And what, what happens? So it says this, on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children are also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard where? In the other nations. They were being a light again. They were showing people that in God's, under God's rule, in God's will, you can have freedom and joy that makes you sing. God's people were once again doing what God's people were supposed to do, be salt and light. So we come to our time of covenant renewal, remembering what God has done for us and his amazing grace in Jesus and considering what it is for us to respond. In Nehemiah's day, and we're going to do these three things. They repented of areas they knew were not right with the Lord. You'll know. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid of him. Allow him in. Allow him to touch those bits of darkness. His light brings streams of grace. Secondly, just areas of renewal. We forgot to celebrate the Feast of Booze. Well, what have you forgotten to do? What do you need to be renewed in your first love? Where do you think I need to be rekindled? I need to be re-sparked, re-galvanized in the Lord. And then we're going to rejoice. And we're not going to make this a somber occasion. We're celebrating the great victory our King has won for us. And how, yes, we need to be convicted of our sin, but more we rejoice in our salvation. What sort of people might we be? A holy people, because we know God's word and we allow it to be a mirror to our lives. A committed people, because we know God's story and how deep our roots go. And a joyful people, because we know the grace of God. So those are the three questions for you to consider. What, what do you need to repent of? Maybe start with the areas of money, sex, and power. Where do you want to be renewed in your spirit, in the Lord. And as we come forward, what does it mean to rejoice again in our great Saviour? And if you can do those three things with sincerity, please come forward with great joy and take the bread and the wine when you're ready.